Limbs. Ghost swarms alight your best array in vacant rooms unseen. Last summer, when grass was our mother tongue, shy-eyed, our laps evaded translation and harvest. We shunned haircuts and wine, spoke only in verdant carols. Now, ether glistens in open air, and marrow blooms in glass. The slain touch my mouth with decoyed hands, elbows knuckled to wrists, impossible to disentangle. A slow horde of indifference blooms as we become our own aftermaths. What rare species lies beyond, raw-minded, untethered? Surely some cure will appear to cut the glow of fever dreams and call us in farther from the fields. Welcome to episode 21 of Lady Fiction, a podcast anchored in America Zentrum Hamburg's Transatlanticist series. My name is Stephanie Schaefer, and you just heard a poetry reading of Limbs from today's guest, a prize-winning poet and scholar from Kentucky, now based in Australia, Lindsay Tuckle. I'm lucky to host Lindsay here in person in my Weimar office, so that's a first for the podcast. And with her, I'm happy to talk about solastalgia, a phenomenon that describes the links between human and ecosystem health in the day and age of extreme weather events and climate change uh, that induce ecological destruction. In Germany, we're seeing a summer of extreme rain and thunderstorms this year, and we are still shaken by the catastrophic flooding of the Ahr River Valley two years ago when 196 people died in the German parts of the Ahr River Valley alone. German climate change activism has also taken a new turn recently with the interventions of a group called Last Generation, Letzte Generation, who glue themselves to busy streets and airport tarmacs to call attention to what they believe is our last chance to hinder global warming by catastrophic degrees. The debates between last-generation activists and the general German public have become more extreme recently, with the German Populist Party using this to attack their political opponent, the Green Party, and to discursively frame the last-generation activists as climate terrorists and enemies to the nation-state and society. So climate change activists, and specifically the mostly young members of Fridays for Future, claim that their right to life, to a future, and to a home is at stake. And they often despair at the failure of their opponents to acknowledge this and work for political change with them. And this is where politics and art meet. The feeling of mourning a destroyed place has been described by Glenn Albrecht, a philosopher, in his book Earth Emotions, New Words for a New World, published with Cornell in 2019. Artistic engagements with solastalgia articulate the catastrophe that is unfolding before our eyes, and we're in the midst of it. Last year, Solastalgia was the title for a hybrid film by Munich's Hochschule für Films alumna Marina Hufnagel, and of a play staged at Schauspiel Frankfurt by Thomas Kirk. 
My guest Lindsay Tuggle engages solastalgia in her poetic and academic work. And I'm so excited to have you here today with me. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you. It's quite wonderfully surreal to be in person with you. So um, I'm going to quickly introduce you to our readers, and then I'm very eager to talk about Limbs, the poem that you read to us. Um, Lindsay Tuggle is the author of The Afterlives of Specimens, a study of Walt Whitman's poetry, which was glowingly reviewed in the New York Review of Books. Her debut poetry collection, Calenture, was named one of the Australian's Books of the Year, shortlisted for both the Association of the Study of Australian Literature's Mary Gilmore Award and Australian Poetry's Anne Elder Award. The UK Poet Laureate Simon Armitage has described her work as, quote, lean and enigmatic, the most sophisticated of entries in terms of its style, unquote. Lindsay's work has been supported by the prestigious Library of Congress's Kluge Fellowship and a Travelling Fellowship from the Australian Academy of the Humanities. In 2023, Lindsay is a writer in residence at Bandanan Gallery and National Trust in Australia and at Chateau d'Arcvaux in Champagne in France. Lindsay was recently commissioned by Oxford University Press to write a retrospective on the intersections between her poetry and her research on Whitman and the medical humanities for the Oxford Companion to Walt Whitman, forthcoming in 2024. So Lindsay is also currently writing a lyric essay in series of poems about the destruction of her hometown of Mayfield, Kentucky, by a tornado in December 2021. So maybe we can start by talking about Lim's, your engagement with destruction and the loss of plays um, that you read to us in the opening. How do you relate to a place that is gone and that you're far from? How, what is solastalgic about your work? It's interesting because the poem that I read was actually written before the tornado. Mm. Um, but in a sense, um, I have been elegizing this place for as long as I've been writing, which has been most of my life. I think you can feel a place vanishing if you are attuned in particular ways. The county that Mayfield is in is called Graves County because there are so many cemeteries. Mm. And they're everything from, you know, a really established and structured gorgeous cemetery on the outskirts of town, which has a lot of family graves going back many generations to these sort of tumbling cemeteries in mm. fields and forests that you can only find on foot and you really need someone who knows that land to bring you there. So I think in a sense, this is a place that's been, it, it's still graced with exceptional natural beauty, but it is been suffering an erasure at the hands of poverty, mm. agribusiness, mm. mining, mall sprawl, and just the kind of homogenization that comes with like capitalist rural America, mm. you know. So I've been expecting that, writing about it um, for many years. And, you know, I said to a friend not long ago, it was kind of the beginning of this, this project that I'm in the very early stages of, that I was haunted by this place long before it became a ghost town. Mm. 
And I want to be careful with that phrase because there are many living people still there and there mm-hmm. are many stories of resilience mm-hmm. um, coming out of this storm. But we are also haunted. Mm-hmm. And that's always, I think, true of, of any place, but particularly of um, of Southern towns and mm-hmm. Civil War towns where mm-hmm. there's still very much systemic division, not only racially, but socioeconomically, politically, all mm-hmm. the things we're seeing now. So... Yeah, so so Limbs was written, it was commissioned in um, for Whitman's Bicentennial in 2019. And what I sought to do was to take fragments of Whitman that had always felt deeply personal to me, and particularly around how we elegize place um, and how we elegize um, places that are, whether it's rapid destruction or slow erosion, both of which have happened to the place I come from, and to take these fragments and then to turn them into something else. So the line, the reason I chose this poem to read today is it felt, the entire series that I wrote for Commonplace in 2019 felt quite prophetic to me after the tornado hit, but in particular the line, a slow horde of indifference blooms as we become our own aftermaths, felt to me really emblematic of the, you know, the sort of, current amnesia, if you could have amnesia in the present moment, you know, um, that, that, that seems to pervade um, much of America and much of Australia in relation to climate disaster, when we are very much, like so many of us are, living on the front lines of it. So, yeah, I think that's why mm. I chose it. We become our own aftermaths, as in there's still a we but we are also past at the same time, mm, right? Mm, mm. Um, and I think this captures this concept of, of solastalgia, the, you know, a little bit the attempt to engage with the present moment and place while at the same time knowing it's already gone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how, how does this solastalgia work? I mean, most people who haven't heard it will probably be thinking of nostalgia mm. and related there. Mm, and mm. Uh, what does what does Albrecht say and um, how does it resurface in your own work? Well, it's really interesting. Like, uh, you know, another kind of catalyst for these poems was thinking about the essay I was writing about being asked to talk about the ways that my research on Whitman and Civil War medicine influenced my poetry And that was incredibly challenging because it's, they're so enmeshed, you know. But when I first heard the word solastalgia, it was much like, the feeling state was much like when I first heard the word calenture, which is the title of my first book of poetry. And calenture is also an archaic medical word for a particular tropical fever that afflicted sailors in the 18th and 19th century. And it was particularly marked or identified by a hallucination in which they saw the sea as green fields and they would leap overboard um, because they were so enthralled to this mirage. And that recalled for me an image so visceral that it, it comes to me the way concentric circles happen behind your eyelids when you've looked too long at the sun. It's an image of my late sister when we were teenagers diving from these very high cliffs in the lakes near our town, an area called Land Between the Lakes. 
And there was a, an algal bloom that year that made the sea moss green, or the, it's not a sea, but the, the lake moss green. And so I had this image of her when I heard this word for the first time, and that became the book. And when I first heard Albrecht talk about solastalgia, I felt this kind of homing or keening, the, the sense you feel when a wound has a name, hmm. you know. And that was also, of course, many years before the tornado. So Albrecht um, is an environmental philosopher, and he kind of created the idea of solastalgia from the word algos for pain, but also with a, a root gesture towards nostalgia. But importantly, you know, the origins of nostalgia are very different to maybe how we think of it in a contemporary way where we often think of a kind of conservative longing for an idealized past or a past that privileges whiteness. The, the history of medicine origins of it go back to Johannes Hofer in, this, in 1688, um, a Swiss physician who observed in soldiers and also in female domestic servants who were taken abroad this homesickness that was so pervasive it was fatal if there wasn't a return. And most interesting to me was that the return was the cure, but not always. Hmm. Because when people were so altered themselves, they found that even returning to a relatively unaltered homeland, I mean, place is never static, you know, it's never unchanging, um, that they had been so changed that, you know, they continued in in Hoffer's thesis to experience this this malady. Now, the the disorder of nostalgia sort of has a, a bit of a heyday in the 17th, early 18th centuries, and then it, it's declined really by the time the American Civil War happens, but that catalyzes a revival, and it becomes one of the most diagnosed disorders of the American Civil War, a subset of melancholia. It's what we would today think of. It's ha- part of how they were classifying what we would today think of as post-traumatic stress. I was going um, to ask about that. So um, it's in in this definition, it's a uh, it's linked to events that happen and uh, it's a psychic malady so it's pathological and it's diagnosed and presumably there's a cure that doesn't always work but it's a it's a state of mind uh, that people are in as a sickness of the soul mm. Um, mm. that's caused by external external events by a distance from home and and you know Albrecht says very poetically that solastalgia in contrast is not is not a pain that we feel because we are far from home. It is a pain that we feel because home is is rapidly changing in in negative ways. And also importantly, I think there are two developments that sort of shift things very much away from the medicalization of nostalgia and even from my, you know, my research as a scholar on Civil War medicine. The first is that, you know, Albrecht is really clear in the origins of thinking about solastalgia. This is not 
um, biomedical. It is not diagnostic. In fact, we are all to varying degrees living with it, or we should be, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. And he's got, you know, the, the book, Earth Emotions, is a kind of lexicon for how our emotion states are deeply connected to the earth and the environment in both positive and negative ways. So there, there are um, all kinds of spectrums of, of emotional um, states there. And one that he has talked about in relation to rapid or violent devastation is what he calls terror trauma, mm-hmm. which I've just come from seeing Mayfield for the first time. And that's much more, you know, I think in a sense, in a true sense of the word, so nostalgia is much more about this the slower erosion of place that I was experiencing to use myself as a case study before the tornado. And so um so there are distinctions there. But also, you know, that the the study of nostalgia, the psychological study of nostalgia has shifted in leaps and bounds in recent decades. And there's um a book by Clay Rutledge on nostalgia as a psychological resource. And I think in a way that's really aligned and interesting for Solastalgia and for Albrecht's work, who, you know, he very much wants to be someone who is capable of optimism, which I think is a really revolutionary act when you're an environmental philosopher in this moment. But what Rutledge has observed over many years of research is that far from like catalyzing passivity or what we think of as melancholia, which I could go on another rant about generous melancholy and that melancholia is actually not always negative, but that's a separate podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but Rutledge talks about the ways in which feeling nostalgia actually catalyzes connection with other people. It's a, a sort of resilience response to change, to sadness, to trauma, and it actually makes us more likely to take positive action. So in a sense, both nostalgia and nostalgia are very necessary emotions for us as a collective species to be having right now, to try to wake up to change. I'm so struck by um, the term terror trauma <laughs> and how we need to navigate the pathological as in I am afflicted by this and mm-hmm. there's nothing that can be done or I need to be cured or treated. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, this... Um, positive impetus that uh, Albrecht has in his book and he calls it earth emotions he doesn't call it earth sickness or something so how does terra trauma relate to this potential activism or the positive impetus um, that solastalgia has can have look I, I mean I hesitate to speak for him but I would say you know there's another interesting um, interesting area that I have read extensively that feels connected to me which is around like Martin Seligman's work on traumatic resilience and the ways in which we have from a psychoanalytic perspective focused so much on the negative elements of traumatic stress and ignored the fact that it can actually in many cases be a catalyst for um, for growth not just for resilience, but actually for quite positive um, outcomes. And I think if we if we can, you know, the danger in the Anthropocene is passivity and powerlessness and becoming overwhelmed. And as a species, we are actually, and I've seen this, you know, just coming from Mayfield, mm. capable of extraordinary acts of resilience and collective, you know, human connection. 
so I think that would be um, that would be the hope. Mm. What are the acts of resilience and human connection that you've seen in Mayfield that you find inspiring? I think to answer this question, honestly, I have to talk about church, which is complicated for me. And I hope my mother doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> But so I was raised quite paradoxically by someone who is very much a progressive political activist. But after my father's death, she returned to the religion that she was raised in, which is a very sort of firebrand Southern evangelical faith called very creatively the Church of Christ. Um, and this kind of gives you a sense of everything you need to know about them. Like there shouldn't be any music, there shouldn't be any dancing. It's a very kind of um, absence of joy, pleasure in, in worship or in celebration. And, you know, there was a lot of deeply entrenched in, um, structural misogyny that women are not to speak in the church and these kinds of things. And when I left very young, left Kentucky at 23, that was pretty much unchanged. In the last decade in her church, there's been a new preacher and a fundamentally seismic shift in the culture of this place. And, you know, what I have witnessed where growing up there, I remember there was a, a charity that the, the male elders of the church had where they would accept donations of furniture and they would then um, refurbish the furniture and give it a second life and try to give it away to people in need. But they had a list of criteria that you needed to, this is very much worthy and unworthy poor, kind of from the 19th century that you had to meet in order to be worthy of their charity. And what, of course, ended up happening is they were just filling, filling buildings with furniture they couldn't give away. You know, the church now is building houses, and there's no criteria. There's no, you know, they're doing work across the community. We're seeing people who, from opposite sides of politics, and in, we're in other parts of the state's, We're seeing so much division and, you know, the kind of Trump political era has just created what seem to be these immovable fissures. And I'm actually seeing those really close over in my field and a real sense of cohesion. You know, another like quite concrete and specific example is there's a particular business that I'm not going to name. Um, and this is often the case in towns of this size A lot of the older and very beautiful kind of antebellum homes now sort of exist in close proximity to the inner city homes. So there's a quite a stark juxtaposition of socioeconomic and racial um, housing. And this was a business that existed in one of these quite grand, you know, Victorian antebellum mansions. And they had built an enormous wall. To, to sort of screen out and keep away their largely black neighbors. In the aftermath of the tornado, they kind of became, um, uh, opened up the, um, the disused rooms because their um, building was, their home was largely untouched um, for people who didn't have a place to stay. They've become kind of integrated within that community. So there's real shifts happening that give me space for hope. I wouldn't say it's the dominant emotion. But do you see a concrete climate change activism after the experience of the tornado and the flooding? And you said it flooded again, right? Yeah. This year it flooded again, which is 
really kind of a thing to get your head around. It floated again while I was there. Yes, not nearly as bad. Although there there was still a lot of a lot of damage, um, but no lives were lost. It's difficult to say. I think the problem in red states is that people have learned not to talk about it. Progressive people have learned not to talk about it because there's a very real danger. You know, like there's the, the shootings that you know constant sense that um, that violence could erupt. And everyone, I think, feels, much in the way that in Australia, everyone feels, having watched the fires in Canada and in Europe, everyone feels a kind of dread or trepidation about the summer to come. In America, everyone's really feeling dread and trepidation about the election. So people are are being very, um, you know, progressives are being very careful and very cautious. So I'm not seeing open activism But what I do see that is new is an acknowledgement among, you know, everyday people, people in the church, friends of my uncle who's a farmer, that this has changed, that climate change is real. And that is is new. And that is a key to, you know, future activism. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... You know, when people start acknowledging the fact that it's real, when they experience it in their bare lives and they're threatened by it, then, you know, chances are they will be more open to measures to prevent it somehow. And it's interesting that there's also, you describe this reluctance to acknowledge it in politics, because when, when I opened this, um, when I talked about the political situation in Germany right now and uh, the fact that the populist party is using this climate activism of their presumed opponents, the Greens, to um, catch votes and say, they're going to change your life. They're, you know, um, they're going to ask you to build a new house around a new kind of heating and they're going to take all your money. And uh, it's not even it's it's a kind of a terrorist thing. Um that they're doing specifically let's the generation last generation activists are being ostracized in this way and um it's so mind harrowing to see those political debates and uh, to see this populist move because of course it's a right to protest mm -hmm. they have a right to protest and if they hinder traffic um, and people are really bothered by this. And, you know, you can't get to work on time. Or there was a case last year in Berlin where actually um, there was a medical um, a medical emergency. And because of people gluing themselves to the street, then um, the um, medical help couldn't get through on time. So that was really, everybody said, oh, uh, you killed the person because uh, they didn't have the medical supplies uh, on time because of this climate activism. And that's, I think that is, That kind of debate is so beside the point. It shouldn't be about what kind of activism is accurate, what kind of uh, political um, agenda is the best now. We need to act together and we need to also kind of rely on our institutions and maybe not be bogged down by the fear of, the, as you talk about the progressives in the South, you know, if they if they declare themselves uh, climate change activists or if they say well we would like to do something in our politics uh, then obviously they're so afraid if they say this that they're going to lose votes because of this i mean what is this it's uh 
it's a very emotional, maybe deliberate looking away from the facts and uh, looking to go looking for a different conflict instead of, you know, thinking about productively thinking about what can we do. The talk is about, oh, our political opponents, you know, they're, they have the wrong, they got it all wrong and they will, I don't know, create a, a state of eco-terrorism for you um, and take away your citizen rights. Um, and that is populist. It's populism 101. And that's what I'm really concerned about. And we have a very similar situation in Australia where our previous Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, um, who thankfully is gone and jobless, um, uh, to my great delight, um, but he escalated the penalties for climate activism. So, for example, we had a young woman who, as an act of protest against Sydney's woeful lack of public transport and privileging of vehicles that burn fossil fuels and building of major new roads at the expense of building new public transport, um, obstructed the Harbour Bridge, laid down on the Harbour Bridge during peak hour. She went to jail for, I believe it was three years. Um, that was the sentence anyway, how much will be served. We have a wonderful activist for um, gender against gender violence, Grace Tame, who was our Australian of the Year in 2020, I believe. And her assailant went to jail for around six months. So this gives you a sense of how we're, how the institution is conceiving of crime in relation to you know, the female body, the, mm. the earth body, those who are trying to defend either of those things. And, you know, sort of segue or side issue is that part of the reason Grace Tame was named Australian of the Year is that her own speech about her experience of violence was censored by laws in Tasmania. And her activism and what catalyzed her receiving this award and becoming an incredible spokesperson was that she was campaigning to change that law so that she could simply speak about the violence that she had survived. You know, and I think that's it's like what I'm hearing, what you're saying we all are trying to do is speak about the violence that we are collectively, hopefully surviving. Maybe um, we can get back to the question of art. Yes. <laughs> As a poet, uh, you engage poetically with, of course, your own, it's a, it's a very individual, it's your own life, but you um, render it in uh, poetry that speaks to the moment as well. It's an easy question for me to answer, for you to, to answer as well, but maybe let's meditate a little bit on, on art's potential in being, you know, a linchpin in this debate mm. um, and um, linking the politics with the activism or maybe also expressing the feeling of solastalgia, framing it, putting it into an expression that, you know, people can relate to. I think I would, maybe it's me returning to my comfort zone, but I think I would turn to Whitman on that question because, you know, when I, like, after tw the 2016 election, as I think many of us did, went into a very deep, deep despair. And in the midst of that, I was asked to do an interview on how we read Whitman in the aftermath of, of having elected this, you know, 
I don't have populist. a word. <laughs> a populist. He um, is a populist, and, to say the least. Yeah, many other words spring to mind, but I won't utter them. And what I started to think about was the way that Whitman writes one of the most transcendental and optimistic works of American literature on the when the nation is on the brink of civil war and when he himself is in extreme grief you know throughout his life losing parents losing siblings losing hundreds of thousands of soldiers and you know thousands of whom he was personally connected to through his work in the civil war hospitals so i think part of how i approach poetics of mourning is through relationship to earth and place you know for Whitman um there can be no transcendence without decay and and there can be no decay without death so elegy becomes a kind of um a kind of act of resilience you know elegy becomes not just about mourning and not just about the past but it also becomes about how we are transformed through loss um, and how we ourselves look to be transformed when we are no longer here you know I love the line at the end of Song of Myself when Whitman says if you want me again look for me under your boot soles I'll you know I stop somewhere waiting for you so the sense in which it, it is unending you know to die is different from what anyone supposed and luckier and I think for me, in the question of elegy, whether I'm writing about place, and it's never one thing at a time, somehow, it's always a constellation. You know, the other project that I'm working on right now is a suite of elegies that were catalyzed by um, some archival work that I did at the Mature Museum in Philadelphia and three books that were bound in the skin of a woman, Mary Lynch, who was autopsied without her consent in a charity hospital in Philadelphia in the 19th century. And I was very fortunate to have access to those books a few years ago. And that was happening, I was doing that research as Trump was being inaugurated. And I was thinking about all the ways in which the debt that medicine owes to dispossessed bodies you know and that ended up becoming a suite of elegies about women and gender violence and all, all the ways in which as a collective we share this you know collective body we share this history and as you know I've gone through various medical procedures I think about Mary Lynch I think about all of the the countless bodies who our knowledge of, of human anatomy has has been built on. And so I think, you know, elegy and activism, it's complicated because it's, for me, it's indirect. You know, it, it just sort of comes out of the work, becomes political in its own way. I don't set out to make it political, but I also think it's inherently political that poetry when when it's you know when it's in its purest form is is inherently an act of of resistance you know resistance to the even resistance to the idea that language 
is finite or fixed. You know, I think for me, poetry comes from trying to find words for something that is unsayable, which is also for me a connection to Whitman. And you'll always fail, but that's that's the endeavor. That's the endeavor. What I find so intriguing is your understanding of elegy, which is also new to me and so so inspiring. So um, you say elegy as not only only the effort of expressing grief and emotion in the sense, but also as a strategy for resilience, as in once the elegy is written, once it's kind of brought to paper, maybe expressed, we can also move on and we've created something that is going to last. It's also a kind of a, a process of saying, okay, I'm going to put this, I'm going to express it, put this elegy there, right? an elegy or a poem or a text and tear it out of my heart. Mm. And then it's there. Um, and it's going to last for whoever cares to read it, um, for whoever cares to go back to it. It's also a strategy for, you know, making ourselves last through time. So I like this positive or resilient uh, reading that you have of elegy. Yeah, and I guess that's the, the, I guess I only realized in that moment as you were speaking, that's the fundamental resistance is it's, you know, when we write, resisting our own ephemerality, you know, and when we write elegy, we're resisting the ephemerality of the beloved and we're resisting their anonymity, you know, which is again a Whitman connection that he's writing these elegies for so many soldiers, many of whom he tended personally in the hospitals, but many of whom are kind of, you know, a collective of ghosts, you know, and and how do we mourn when loss is so vast, you know, is a question that he's really interested in, which is, I think, a question that's incredibly vital right now. But yeah, I think when we write Elegy, we, we resist the idea that that erasure is finite or permanent. Um, and, that, and that's kind of what writing is, mm. in a sense. Mm. There's another thing that I find so interesting when we started looking into to Solastalgia. I found a research article that said, um, basically, and this is back to the climate change component here, basically we need to listen to indigenous voices more and indigenous knowledges of the land because those knowledges have been, you know, wiped out by settler colonialism and it's obvious that you know settler culture has also you talked about agribusiness uh in in mayfield um, settler the settler economy has also corrupted the land and brought it to the situation that we're in right now and uh for an american studies perspective i think it's interesting to think of this concept of uh, indigenous thinking and uh, living in north america as a post-apocalyptic, already post-apocalyptic state of being with the apocalypse starting with the arrival of the settlers and the transformation of the land. So it's never, you know, from a global perspective, um, we could say maybe it's uh, colonialism, capitalism, extractionism, um, these tendencies to, you know, make everything greater, bigger, and uh, to co to connect the world even more. And for the specifics of North America, um, it makes sense to listen to that or to, to heed 
the um, indigenous position on this. And I'm not trying to speak for indigenous people here, but it's it's an important thought concept to acknowledge the fact that, you know, we're not the only ones. <laughs> um, and um, we have contributed to the state that things are in and uh, there, but there are resiliences and knowledges that we can maybe go back to or that need to be heard more specifically. Well, it's, it's really interesting because this morning I was listening to um, a paper that Albrecht gave on fire and solastalgia. And I've managed to lose the title in my, all my various papers and he was specifically talking about time that he'd spent in Arnhem Land with um, Indigenous Australians and ways in which fire was specifically used and very cultivated burning was specifically used to, to prevent the kind of catastrophic bushfires that Australia experienced in 2019. And, you know, the Australian ecosystem is, is designed to burn cyclically. But because we have so altered it with settlement and cathect so deeply in both of the countries in which I have citizenship, America and Australia, with the idea that, you know, the apocalypse began with the arrival of white settlers, you know, and that that is an incredibly um, resonant way of thinking about it. And, and, you know, not only in the, in the genocidal sense, but in the environmental sense, right? You know, um, when I look at Australia in the Anthropocene, I, I do tend towards the paralysis of fear. It's very, and I think a lot of this work comes out of that and comes out of the sense that in both of the home countries that I'm allowed to live, I'm very much afraid that it, it may not be livable as we know it in my lifetime, um, you know, so I think that that returning to that knowledge is central to our survival. Maybe we can end on a positive note. Yes, I would love that. <laughs> and actually return to, um, you know, artistic production and uh, elegy as a kind of a res resilience, practice of resilience. I really like that. Um, so... Let's say um, in this day and age, we're we're looking at um, affect theory, you know, history of emotions and research. This has become a little bit of a thing where we're looking at the affective turn, um, and uh, you know, many researchers in the cultural studies um, areas are looking into this more. Uh, and I think solastalgia is such a a good concept for this because it bridges the medical with the, you know, the pathological, with the psychological. And uh, at the same time, it's not simply a diagnosis, but it's a way of relating mm -hmm. to the world. Um, and, you know, describing that feeling that somebody from Mayfield might share with somebody from Germany who is desperate about the fact that you know the world is burning as we speak and uh, it's, it seems to be impossible to do anything about it i think it's a very productive moment to be thinking about solastalgia as uh, a vehicle for future re-engagement with our human presence on this planet 
Yes, and, you know, fundamentally, you know, another thing Albrecht was saying, and it, it took great kind of hope and comfort in this, was that what he ho- what he most hopes for his work on Celestalgia, you know, less so on the, the um, more um, optimistic or positive elements of Earth emotion that he's outlined, is that it will it will become unnecessary. And I thought that not only is this, like, not only am I comforted by his capacity for hope, but what a wonderfully kind of, you know, what a, what a wonderful way of composting yourself to borrow from Whitman, to imagine that the things you've written about, you know, I've, I spent a lot of years of my life writing about trauma and, and then made an absolute vow that I wasn't going to do that again. <laughs> and here we are. But I thought, you know, to imagine that the work you've done on human suffering would become unnecessary is a wonderful way of composting. And I, I do feel that, you know, when I, you know, I was at Bundan on Trust earlier this year as an artist in residence and alongside um, several other all-female artists from various disciplines and came away from that week feeling probably more optimistic than I have since 2019 because I think collectively there are so many people, scientists, creatives, scholars, um, maybe politicians one day, (laughs) thinking about this, you know, from ways that are so foreign to me and yet like this, the uncanny, the unheim, like you hear it and you feel that sense of aha yes this is the word for the wound and I think you know as as literary studies people right finding the right word that's not so easy and maybe that's the beginning as we start to create a lexicon for what the Anthropocene looks like and then we're creating art that speaks into that lacuna and that loss. And, you know, I think always the danger is is, um, is not seeing the wound, you know, is not seeing the loss. So as, we, as the scales start to fall from our collective eyes and as we start to ride into that space, I do, I do have hope that it will become impossible to ignore us. Thank you. That is a wonderful closing statement. I hope our listeners enjoyed our conversation and can relate to various ways. We talked about Australia, we talked about Kentucky, we talked about Germany a bit, but um, this is an episode where it's very important to me to point out that, you know, we're living in a in a moment of uh, uh, global experience. And um, thank you for agreeing to be my guest and for, for tackling this with me and bringing your art to the table here. Thank you so much for the hospitality in body and in virtual virtual space. Just so you know, once again, 
The views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.